I got in the deal. It was a complete gut job. I mean, the house, the only thing that was salvaged on this was like just the exterior walls and the interior walls. Everything else was just completely gutted and demoed out. And it turns out there was a whole nother second story to this property that I had no idea existed. It was like a time capsule where everything that was in there was from the 1950s. It was actually a really cool find and it was a, a big value add. Welcome to the Freedom Chasers podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. All right. Today, we are really excited to be talking with Robbie Faith. He's a real estate entrepreneur located in the Albuquerque market. He is running a, an agency. He's running a small team that's doing high volume. He's also doing wholesaling, fix and flipping, burring, and acquiring larger assets at this point. So we could take this show in a number of directions. Robbie, we're super excited to have you here. We'd love to kick it off with a story, brother. What has been your craziest real estate transaction or experience thus far? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Honored to be on your show. Um, and, uh, yeah, very excited to be here. So, um, you know, something that came to mind for me, um, it's in so many transactions and, you know, luckily I don't have any absolutely wild, crazy stories, but, you know, there have been some kind of interesting things that have occurred over the past, you know, a few years of, of doing real estate deals. And the one that comes to mind for me was, uh, probably one of the most difficult projects I've ever taken on, which was. A, a flip. So I'm going to tell you about a flip deal that I bought. And this was in 2017 when I purchased this and I, it was a bank owned foreclosure. Picked it up here in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the downtown area for about $54,000. It was a Fannie Mae. I had an in with this broker. I knew it was coming. I used to work for this brokerage. So called up the uh, transaction coordinator. I'm like, you got to get me in this deal. So um, I got in the deal. It was a complete gut job. I mean, the house, the only thing that was salvaged on this was like just the exterior walls and the interior walls. Everything else was just completely gutted and demoed out. And so I had to replumb the house for gas, for water, rewired the house, I had to take out this old knob and tube wiring. Um, you know, you name it, we, we fixed the whole thing up. And so what was interesting about this house is kind of unique for Albuquerque is has it has a dormer at one on the very top of the house. It's kind of like a Victorian style house, if you can picture this, with a very high, high roof line. And there's a window in there. And when I bought it, I couldn't get into, there was no access into the attic. And so we start getting into the project. And I thought for sure there was just going to be some type of attic access in a closet. Well, you know, we digging into it, there was just no way to access it from the inside of the house. So... By the time we got to doing the roof, because it needed a roof also, I had the roofer go in on the roof and he just busted open that window um, on the dormer. And it turns out there was a whole nother second story to this property that I had no idea existed. It was like a time capsule where everything that was in there was from the 1950s, 50 style stove, one of those clawfoot tubs. I mean, it was just a massive amount of space that was up top and um, after him getting into it, we found out that there was access in the very back of the house. There was a full-size door that was covered up with siding. So I didn't know it was there. And Whoa. it was actually a really cool find. Um, and it was a, a big value add. 
because there was additional square footage that we could add. And, you know, I told you this was a massive project, a big undertaking. I was like, I think over $100,000 into it. And I didn't want to go and take on another project. So what I ended up doing was um, I left that little bit of value add for another investor to come in or the end buyer to just go and finish out that second level. And anyways, kind of a cool story because I had no idea it was there. And, you know, if I were to show you a picture of this place, it's super cool. There's like a full-size door in the back that you could put a staircase up to and it turned out to be kind of a cool experience. Love this. Almost all of our experiences that we get on this show are negative. So kudos to you, right, for actually sharing a positive story. So one question that comes to mind right away because a lot of the, our audience asked about how do you value properties and questions along that line. So you come into this deal, probably with an expectation of certain profit, then to realize, wow, um, there's probably more profit here. How do you reprice the property with this new uh, discovery? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, there was value in it as it was. I mean, I added square footage, livable square footage in the existing uh, floor plan, floor uh, the, the footprint of the property that you know we knew we were we were rehabbing. But this was a whole nother, I don't know, 700, 800 square feet. Um, so, you know, we, when I marketed the property, which is why it's very important to have a very good experienced realtor because the marketing, how you package it is everything, right? So I priced it accordingly at its livable square footage, but we, we pushed it up just a little bit more because there was a value add component that somebody could come in and add a lot more square footage to it, which would, of course, increase the price. So... Um, I mean, we just, we push price on it. And of course this was in 2017. Um, this is, I'm probably the, one of the worst wholesalers or flippers you've ever met because I hate to sell. I fall in love with everything that I buy. And I just always, by the time I'm done with the project, I always have this conundrum of, I'm not going to sell this. And I have to go back and forth and end up, you know, sometimes I do sell, but this was one that I just wish I never sold. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, obviously you ran the numbers. Um, why didn't you finish the second story? Did it just not make sense from a numbers perspective? Or were you just like, this was my budget. I'm just sticking to my original plan. This was a long, pro a long project. And so I went into this thinking as most investors, you know, this is going to be a shorter time frame than what it actually turns out to be. And so I had, I had planned on four to six months. That was not the case. It turned out to be about a year project just with the you know the existing um, scope of work that I had and so I was just at a point guys where I was like I'm done with this I I'm just I don't have the time energy and frankly money to finish this out so that's why I did not do it makes total sense yeah I and mean, you're probably using hard money or some sort of private money and that's costly and so on and so forth so that makes total sense so walk us through a little bit about your journey so you're like us in the sense that you're an agent, you're an investor, you're, you're, you're getting multiple streams of income, you're able to find the best use for properties. How did this thing evolve for you? What got you into real estate and what led you to want to do be in all these different, yeah. different streams? Yeah, so my first deal was a house hack. And so the truth of it is I had saved up my bar mitzvah money um, to buy my first house and I used my turn 17 years old this was in 2005 i was living in the dorms couldn't go back to parents house and so it just i saw some people buying real estate it was hot at the time and i was like shoot i think i should just buy something so my first deal turned out to be a house hack 
Um, and you know, the way that it all started, the way I, the way I really got interested in real estate was probably unintentional, but I had just enough money to be able to, um, pay my first mortgage payment. And that was it. I was 17 years old and I was doing uh, to go work and busing tables in the food and beverage industry. And so on my 18th birthday, when you could actually get your like alcohol certification, become a licensed server. I, on my birthday, I went and took the class so that I could generate enough income to be able to make my first mortgage payment. And of course, by doing so, I was, in, I was hanging out with people that were in the same industry as me. And I started recruiting some of my coworkers to be, to be my roommates. So I had a four bedroom house. I rented out three of the rooms. I wasn't even thinking about this. It just kind of made sense to do it. And like a year in, I was looking at my mortgage being paid down. I was positive 500 bucks a month cash flow. And I'm like, this is kind of cool. I should just continue to do this. So kind of learned the power of real estate um, through my own experience. And that's what got me really interested in, in jumping into real estate more on like a very intentional basis. Cool. So let's talk about how you got into it in this intentional basis. So did you start off looking to acquire more properties right away or did you go the, the real estate licensure route first? Yeah, well, you know, I, I wanted to be a real estate mogul from like a young age. I'm still working on that, obviously. But, um, you know, I bought the timing wasn't so great for me, you know, bought my first house in 05, end of 05. I uh, wanted, had the intent of, you know, buying another property. Um, the, the market was, was not so great. Um, when I bought my second property, it was in 2008. Um, the funny story on this is, uh, you know, I went to school to, to, um, to get into entrepreneurial studies. I always knew that I want to go in business for myself. I never wanted to like climb the corporate ladder and work for anybody. Lemonade stands from, you know, as far as I can remember, very entrepreneurial. So that first day of class, the professor's like, if you're ever going to really like be wealthy, you're never going to use this degree. You're not going to be working for anybody. And so I literally just quit school on the first day of, of taking that class. And I'm like, I'm jumping into real estate full time. Take this guy's advice and saved up some more money, bought a second house to flip in 2008, which is of course not so great timing. Um, but you know, what really got me thinking about things was I had, I had enough money saved up to not even do a full on remodel. I did just the basic stuff, tried to sell it, couldn't sell it. Uh, again, didn't leave myself a whole lot of room to like get myself uh, several months on the open market. I gave myself one month, couldn't sell it in 08. And the beauty of this story is, uh, I learned the lesson of how forgiving real estate can be. And so instead of flipping it. I converted it to a rental property and I had a tenant live in there for, I don't know, until 2016. So about eight years or so I held on to it, even though the market went like this and I was upside down for a bit, went to about here, sold it in 16, about broke even. Um, and so, yeah, that, uh, that was kind of my, my first intentional investor experience. And then in about that same time in 2016, I had, uh, sold a bit, another business that I owned. I owned a uh, service franchise for garage doors and it allowed me to have some seed money. So instead of having to negotiate seller financing or get private money, I now had the money myself to go get very serious about that. And that's about 2016 is when my investment career really started taking off. And simultaneously had accumulated some real estate and it learned that it made sense for me just to get my license so that I can invest in 
in myself and selling my own real estate rather than having somebody else pay to pay um, commissions. Love this. So you hear a college professor say, look, this degree doesn't matter. You take them up on it like like a true, in my opinion, true entrepreneur. That's how you know. And walk us through because like we hear some of our guests are genuinely true entrepreneurs from the day they were born. Others maybe fall into it or, or walk into it. What would you say like a person could feel or know that, Hey, like I know I'm an entrepreneur. Like, how do you know? Yeah. Well, for me, it was, I've been fired from every single job that I've had uh, working for somebody. Um, literally, um, I'm the worst employee ever. So I knew it was really no, it was no choice. I just had to go into business for myself because, and it wasn't that I was doing anything so much wrong in my own mind. It's just, I had a better way of doing it. And so that was kind of the mindset that I had that made me feel confident in my abilities just to go off and work for myself. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how that's been my work experience. It's just, I'm the worst employee you could have ever had. And it's interesting too. I, I think a lot about psychology because um, we're trying to inspire people to take action, to invest, you know, to become free. And so I think about the hangups that people have and, and what they need to do to overcome them. You are getting fired from these jobs. And for some reason, you're not thinking it's your problem, which <laughs> is actually a really good thing, right? But but walk us through that thought process. Like, why are you not the problem that you're getting fired from all well, these jobs? You know, they're in your mind. It was because the overarching goal on all of these jobs, for instance, as a server, I mean, main, these are mainly me waiting tables, was always to get, you know, re yeah. repeat business. And so I took care of the customers so well that they would always come back and want to see me. And so I tried to take care of them. I kind of grew up like understanding what hospitality meant. I would hook them up a little bit, you know, macaroni grill. I don't know if you remember these um, bottles of wine they put on the table where it's on your honor system. You know what I mean? Where you put the wine on the table, they have as much as they want. And I kind of leveraged stuff like that, gave away birthday cakes a few times just because it, you know, people felt like they were taken care of and overall it helped my bottom line and it brought more business for, for the company. So that's kind of an example of how I felt it was maybe not the best way to approach it, but it was my way of, of getting a, a better return for myself and, and for the company I was working for. Yeah. I love this. I mean, you were thinking relationship based from the very beginning. I'm curious if that led into like your customers at this restaurant, did that lead into business and real estate? Yes, absolutely. Funny. You should say that I've got, I was just reminiscing with one of my regulars when I was working at Bravo and um, I was fired from that job too. And unfortunately that was, um, you know, that was definitely my fault. I served alcohol to a minor and I, um, that was not a good thing to do, of course. Uh, but that was a game, big game changer for me because it made me really slow down and start thinking about, you know, I want to do things the right way. And it set me on a path of just making sure that I was above board for everything because of that big scare that I had. But yes, I had nurtured these relationships and still have some of these relationships today. I'm starting to do a lot of content on social media. You know, people are seeing me and, and remembering when I was their waiter. And this particular gentleman reached out to me and was like, ah, I want to learn more. Let's, let's do some business together. And that's an example of just, uh, you know, maintaining that relationship and just kind of putting yourself out there. Absolutely, man. So, I mean, it looks like you started off as an investor 
and then you got your real estate agency license to leverage your investing, essentially. So you're probably more heavily on the investing side than the retail side, but you are crushing it in retail, too. You you mentioned you had a team of four doing about $30 million of volume per year. Can we talk about how the retail side of your business has evolved? Yeah. You know, certainly it kind of all started with retail. I mean, initially, yes, I had made a few investments, but that was not like a, um, I, it was not a, a way that I could count on to generate income. I, I've always been in sales. It just kind of made sense for me to start selling real estate because it was an easy product to sell. Um, I, and so anyways, it, uh, I started, I started in getting very serious in 2016 about building my team. I had been licensed since 2009, just kind of dabbling with it while I was working on some other businesses, got serious in 16 with the, in, with the real intent of building a team and leveraging my time. Um, and so, yes, it's evolved uh, to where it is today, where, you know, we do about $30 million in, in, in uh, volume. Um, we're top 1% now, Albuquerque. Um, and so we're very active. Um, and, and now, you know, that I'm kind of very more heavily involved on the investment side, I've learned that I used to think that it was kind of like, you got to go one path or the other, like, you know, the one thing Gary Keller talks about this, pick your one thing. And I've kind of just made my own. It just makes sense for me as a business model, just to I'm in the real estate business and I just have multiple bites out of the same apple. I'm generate a lead. Either it comes in as a retail lead that could potentially turn into a flip or a wholesale or investment deal where I buy and hold it. But the idea is that these are all overlapping. And they're very complementary to each other. So I've kind of just started really leaning in on this concept of just building out a real estate business that is all encompassing and can service, you know, many different uh, needs that a consumer might have. Yeah, this is super awesome. And so I want to tap in. I want to go back just a little bit. So we were talking about your journey. You have this unwavering belief in yourself. You get in the garage business. And I want to start to like tie these pieces together. So essentially you made the business successful enough that you could sell it. So tell us about that process. Tell us about the lessons that you learned and how that either prepared, didn't prepare you for, for building this real estate yeah, team. That is a rough business. Let me tell you, you know, um, many lessons learned in that this is a very specialized skill, very specialized labor. It was very difficult. Um, you know, the sales side was easy for me. I was the guy taking the phone calls, building the relationships like I have done in the past and building that rapport. I was selling the phone, but I was never, I've never been the, the, the hands-on labor, hardworking type of person. I just, my mouthpiece is, is my gift, I guess. So um, anyways, that, re- that made me rely on the, you know, the labor that I had. And this is, like I said, it's very difficult to find somebody who can, who can very much handle any type of garage repair that could come up. This is very dangerous work, you know, in some cases when you're working on springs and that kind of thing. So I was held hostage quite a bit. These are salespeople that go to a job that I set for them. And the idea was to upsell, you know, you go to a spring job and you want to sell them rollers or sell them a tune up or maybe quote them on a new garage door. So they're very much salespeople also. And they know their value because if you were to, you know, fire them, it would take a serious amount of time for someone who's brand new in the business to be able to learn that skill set. And they know that. And so they held me hostage. They, de- they had a big demand for higher pay, 
you know, more appealing work schedule. And so, and all this stuff. And so I learned in this business that, you know, as much as the salesmanship is important, it's this like taking care of your people and having good rapport with your, with your employees was probably just the most important factor because as much as you could sell and line up, tee up some jobs for them, if you don't have nobody to go and conduct the work for you, then you've got no business. And so, you know, really it kind of framed real estate as a much more appealing venture to me because it was not so much relying on this type of specialized labor. It's more what you can put together, how creative you can be and really leaning more into the ability for you or an individual to work the, you know, your relationships and your ability to communicate with people that is, has a direct proportion. I mean, it's an, the better you can solve a problem is a direct proportion on how much you potentially could, you know, make on a property or help somebody out. So I found that to be a better fit. And that's kind of what really, you know, pushed me more into that direction. This is so awesome. So your story is not altogether that different from my story. And I am so grateful for the experience I had before I got real estate. And it also was much harder and much worse than being in real estate. And I, I'm curious to get your take on this because I, I think that having a worse experience first was way better for me than actually having a better job than getting into real estate. And I just remember like we would cold call and prospect in my B2B sales job and we would have to get a hold of these people, wait a couple years for their contract to expire, then sell them. And when I found out in real estate, you could buy a list and phone numbers of people that were expired today that could do business with you today that already expressed interest in selling. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like that is easy. All the agents that I, that I worked with that at the beginning were like, you're nuts. You're going to call these people. They're going to cuss you out. I'm like, you have no idea how good you guys have it. So if you could speak to that, like what are your thoughts on like, not maybe should people intentionally go get a terrible job if they want to be realtor first and, and then go in or what are your thoughts? Good question, man. I mean, I think that I know I wouldn't be where I am today if I did not start in food and beverage and working as a waiter. I mean, I feel like this is a conversation I have with a lot of different people. That should be like a requirement for somebody to be in that type of business, learn communication skills, learn how to talk to people, learn how to build relationships, learn how to sell. And so that should be a prerequisite in my, in my opinion, because that does vastly, you know, change your experience and, and potentially your, your trajectory and where you're going to be going. And, you know, would I recommend somebody do something very difficult first? Um, yeah. Like when they, I get a new broker who's, who's on my team, like you better believe that we make them do some of the hard work. They're going to be pounding the phones. They're going to be door knocking. They're going to be doing all of the difficult things just because that is what it takes to be successful. And the more you can get comfortable with that, the more you can learn to love these types of activities, that is what's gonna have you know big impact on how successful one is gonna be. There's no secret sauce to this. You just have to do the work. So if you can just get people to be disciplined enough to do it, however that looks, then yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I'm a believer in. For sure, man. I mean, the mindset part of it tends to be the one part that most people never get, right? You, like you just said, there's no secret sauce. There's no secret out there. I mean, there's a million strategies you could find for free on YouTube. The difference between the ones right. that do well and the ones that don't do well are simply the ones that take action and the ones that don't. I'm going to go back to your food service comment. Um, I came from McDonald's. I was an assistant GM there. 
And I no swear kidding. I learned more working for McDonald's than any other business that I've ever worked at. So I, I totally agree with you. It teaches you, like in my experience, I had to hire, I had to fire, I had to manage food costs, I had to manage labor and all that fun stuff. Um, it was basically, you know, a boot camp for business. Um, and it was amazing. Um, what I would like to get into, since you're talking about working with these new agents, like what kind of strategies are you using on the marketing front? And what kind of prospecting strategies are you teaching your agents? Yeah, I mean, we're a very grassroots organization where, you know, we do buy some leads. Um, you know, it's good to have that as kind of a supplement, but I never want to rely on that. You know, the business that we've built, that I've built is just, it's primarily, you know, just been a result of doing the same damn boring work day in and day out. Um, and so that means just talking to people. Like literally, if there's one thing that I can tell you, it's just talk to people, call the phone book, you know, go to Whole Foods, grab some lunch, make sure you're talking to everybody that's around you. You know, this is what it takes. You just never know the human capital is just probably one of the most valuable components to this business because it's a product that people, everybody has, number one, everybody wants. And so, you know, the more you kind of let people know what you're doing, the more relationships you're able to build, you know, the, the, the more successful you're going to come. So we do some, we do buy some leads. It's a lot of cold calling. Um, it's a lot of referral business. I mean, been doing this long enough now where we've built a good uh, client base and we're constantly staying in touch with our clients, trying to add value, you know, during COVID checking in on people as often as possible, seeing if there's anything that they need. Um, and, you know, just do a damn good job. And if you can, you know, do be so good that they can't ignore you, then you're just likely going to get some more business and it just kind of snowballs from there. Yeah, that makes total sense. So in building a team, like so you're talking about things that like, you got to get them to do the hard work and so on and so forth. And that is great in theory, tough in practice. So, you know, kudos to you and to all the team leaders that continue to do that at a high level. How much do you find yourself thinking about the balance between getting them to do the hard work and providing an environment where it's easier for them, like bringing in more and more leads, you know, those types of, of thoughts? Yeah, well, I think that um, if you can train teach somebody that, you know, this, this, the actual skill is the discipline, you know, and so that's going to be far more beneficial for them. Um, and I tell them that like, look, we'll give you some leads. We're going to, we're going to provide some leads for you. And that's going to provide some immediate income for you. So long as you nurture that lead properly, but you know, the real skill that we're trying to teach you here, um, is, you know, we're trying to build character. You are, you are in a business that is very competitive. It's ultra competitive, right? I mean, we might see a bunch of agents drop off here in the next uh, few months because of you know what we're experiencing in this shifting market. But this is a time right now, and we're double we're double downing on this. Like this is this is the separation season. This is where it's going to be vastly more important for you to be doing the difficult things um, because it it's the potential for us to gain more market share and really jump ahead of the people who aren't going to be able to survive. So it is a struggle. But it's really just kind of teaching more mindset. We don't really teach sales. I mean, there is a component to that. Um, but it's more of just like we're teaching people the mindset that they're going to need to be successful in this business. And if you can get that, it doesn't matter if it's here or in another business, you could parlay it into anything. 
And so just being very upfront about managing expectations, like this is what we're here to do. This is what we're trying to teach you. And this is why, and yes, you're going to get some leads too, but I want to show you how you can be successful on your own coming from value. Thank you for that fantastic answer, Robbie. I really love a couple things that you said there. So you're building the skill sets of character and you're building the skill sets of discipline. Um, and you focus on the mindset because that can be transferable across fields. So, I mean, the way you're doing that is extremely effective. Um, what kind of mindset techniques are you teaching your agents so that they could get over the hump? Because, you know, tech, typically in real estate, like, there's just this one hump that once you get over, you're, you're just over it yeah. forever. But getting over that hump is the challenge. So like, what are you doing to assist people to get over that hump? Yeah, so this is something that I talk about like all the time and I really try to drill in, you know, to my team on this. And it's really just, this is a follow-up game, you know, and the product of course that we're, that we're following up on is real estate, but it's 99% follow-up. I've got stories that I could share with you of where I've been talking to people for years before things come to fruition. I mean, some of the best deals that I've ever done, the most fruitful deals that I've ever had um, have been a result of me just being relentless in my follow-up game. And so this is like a big thing that we talk about a lot is we follow up until people tell us to go away and we invite them to tell us to go away. And we, we actually like to kind of incorporate that into the conversation at any point. If you feel like we're just not, you're not wanting us to call and check in on you, please just tell us no and we'll just take you off of our list. And, you know, if you give people the room to say no, they feel more comfortable. And, you know, sometimes they just kind of like to hear from you. So it's really just a matter of just being so persistent and relentless in your follow-up. And that is what separates us. Um, I can I can give you countless stories on how we've had success and just not giving up. It's awesome, man. Thirty million dollars of production a year is is no joke. Um, and you said you have four agents on the team. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, four or five people producing. I mean, that's eight eight thousand eight million a year each give or take so that's that's pretty amazing so you have really stepped up your investing game and now you have both of those streams and so question for you is if you could only have one stream of income what stream would you pick well that's an easy one it would definitely be um you know my my stream of income from the, the real estate that i own um and you know if i were to really look at the data i mean the 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 income that that i make you know, in all transparency as a realtor is really great it's a great high paying job but the wealth that i make a uh, majority of the wealth that i've made is by owning real estate and the stream of income that i have as a result of owning real estate is not as appealing as the stream of income that i have you know working my active income job but the idea is to kind of have that flip and so my goal is just continue to build wealth in real estate by buying and accumulating more. Um, and then at the same time, you know, buying assets that, you know, have, will kick off cash. I mean, this is just the most interesting thing in the world to me is just one decision that you make, one purchase can pay you in perpetuity for the rest of your life. I mean, what other asset class will do that for you? So by far, I mean, it's definitely the stream of income from owning real estate. 
Love that answer. Um, so a lot of our audience is actually realtors that are new to investing. So what would you tell them, like, to get them off of the ledge that they're on that they haven't leapt into it yet? Because there's so many realtors out there that know nothing about real estate investing. It's, But like you said, being a realtor is a great way to create income, but it's not a great mm -hmm. way to create wealth. So what would you say to transition somebody into the role yep. from real estate agent to investor? I love this question. This is kind of like one of my key messages that I have. Um, and the answer is we need to start educating realtors out there on their ability to work both businesses simultaneously. And I'll give you kind of an example of this. I go into every listing appointment with the hope and intent of buying the listing. And so, you know, of course, we're, we're thinking about multiple exit strategies here. And so I'm now kind of at a point I used to, I just told you in the beginning of this that I, I don't pay retail for anything. I, I have to have a discount. There's been a mindset shift where if I can get a discount, not on the price, but on the payment, if I can do something creatively where I can generate the cash flow, then I will be more willing to pay a retail price. There's still a discount just built in on the other side. So the conversations that I'm having with brokers are, you have a treasure trove of opportunity as a realtor where you're on the front lines of dealing with sellers. Like just make that small shift into going to a listing appointment with the intent of seeing if there's a way that you might be able to you know, accomplish the goal that the seller is looking for while also potentially being able to buy it, hold on to it, buy it, you know, to wholesale, buy it, to flip. I mean, these are all things that, that I do on, on and listing appointments and a good amount, I would say a good amount of, of properties that of deals that I've done have been the result of homes that I was going in to list. You just asking the right questions is the most important part. You just have to know the right questions to ask. So it's a matter of going in and just saying, Mr. And Mrs. Seller, um, you know, I know you want to sell your home. What's the objective here? You wanting to just get as much money as possible because I can get you top dollar if you can do these things to this house. But if maybe you're not motivated so much by price, but you want some ease and convenience, maybe sell the house and as is condition, you pick the close date. By the way, you don't have to pay me any commissions to do this. Um, would that be something of interest? Yeah, it kind of sounds interesting. Tell me more about that. Okay, well, as an investor, I hope you can understand that. I'm looking for return on investment. So that's my goal. I mean, it doesn't make sense for me just to buy something and not have a return. If I'm going to invest money, I need to have a reasonable return. Is that reasonable? Yeah, I get that. Okay, well, then I'm going to be honest with you. If I were to list this on the open market, it would probably be at this price today. But if you're okay with understanding that maybe you're not going to, you're going to leave a little money on the table. I can make this very simple for you. And by the way, we could back out those real estate commissions on that retail price. And that would bring you here. And I would be just a little bit lower. If you're very transparent and honest, and you actually take the time to walk them through this, God, do they just trust you and like you? Um, so really it's integrity. Investing is kind of something that, that we very much believe in is just being so honest and transparent about what it is that you're trying to do that they have no choice but to believe you and and frankly like you and man it helps it helps your chances and so that's exactly the conversations that we have with a lot of people 
hundred percent agree. And when you are so transparent down to here's what I put on the market for, if you fix it up, here's what I put it on the market for in general, and you break down the cost and you show them and all these are estimates, not exact because you don't know exactly what will happen if they sell it on the market. You can give them a really good picture. And I have been blown away by doing that. How many people will easily forego 20, 50, even a hundred thousand or more just to have the convenience. What I want to dive into, because you do creative financing, it's it's clear from the, the some of the stuff you're saying. So being a math major, I love diving into numbers. You mentioned the comment, I'm going to get my discount one way or the other. Like I think in those terms too. And I know that a lot of times when we're talking to newer investors, that's maybe a harder line to think through. Maybe they're not a math person in, in general. So if you can kind of walk through your thought process of, how much of a discount do you typically buy at? Do you typically buy at 70% of, of ARV, those types of things? And then how do you then mathematically translate that benefit if you're buying creatively closer to market value? Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I would say that I'm a cash flow investor. I mean, that's kind of what my goal is. We talked about replacing my income. And of course, if I can get a discount on the price and building some equity up front, that just minimizes my risk. And I like that too. So, I mean, I, I like to be all in, um, if at all possible, about 70% of what it's worth. And, you know, I've adjusted that lately because I've got money that I need to place somewhere. So if I can get a good return and have some money locked in the deal, I'm okay with that. My first few deals, I wouldn't touch it unless I could completely burr out of it, right? And so now it's kind of a, it's a different objective. Um, I want to deploy my money. I want yield. I want to get, a, you know, I want to replace my income. And so it's become more of a conversation of, all right, well, this is a seller who's telling me straight up that they cannot sell for less than this price. And they're just stuck at that. Well, then we start asking questions like, what, what is your existing mortgage payment? Do you have a mortgage on this property? Yes. Okay. Well, what is the payment? A thousand bucks a month. Okay. Well, that's a really good payment. And so maybe what I do then is instead of me getting a discount on the price, we'll just build in my return on the payment. I'll pay you what you're looking for. And I can then pay you over a period of time. I'll just take over your mortgage for you. And every time that I make a mortgage payment on your behalf, I'm increasing your equity position too, because I'm paying it down. And by the way, there's some tax benefit to this because you're not going to have to take a lump sum on this. You can defer it out over a period of time. And so then it becomes a question of, okay, what kind of yield am I looking for? And, you know, on a single family house, for me to be interested these days, I mean, I'm really looking to, I'm really wanting to get like in my pocket four to $500 net after all of my operating expenses. And I think a lot of people go wrong and not accounting for the operating expenses. I mean, I'm building in management. I used to manage all 80, uh, I had at the time about 20 something units and I've got another chunk, a big chunk of, of real estate that I have professional management on for my mobile home parks. Um, but at the time I was running all the single families on my own and I can't handle that anymore. So now of course I build in management. I build in, you know, a, a contingency or CapEx budget in there. And so I'm just underwriting it the right way. And if I could net $400 minimum in my pocket, then, you know, that's, that's interesting to me. And I'm willing to forego some of that also, if I'm able to work the down payment. I mean, it's all about kind of cash on cash to me. So if I could minimize how much money I have in the deal, but maybe I'm bringing in, I'm cash flowing less than, I mean, it, it becomes a, an amazing return also. So um, it's just, it's kind of a give and take, it's a balance and you just have to have the skill set to be able to learn how to analyze this the right way. 
So when you go into a deal, analyzing, negotiating, a lot of these things happen on the fly. And maybe you don't have to make the decision on the spot, but a lot of times if it's a seller that's open to this, the window of time they're open to, it's not very big. And so it could be very helpful if you're able to think about it, give an answer and put a deal together on the spot. Do you have a strict ish formula or is it more just kind of like I have these general ideas in my mind and I just try and stay relatively within those? Yeah. Gosh, this is a good one. Very good question. I mean, this is a tough one to answer just because it's kind of somewhat in, it's been somewhat intuitive for me. You know, I just, I go to a house and I kind of start just getting an idea of what this would be. Is this going to be a location that I could see myself holding the property in for the next 20 years, 30 years? Okay. That's definitely a buy and hold. So then, you know, I'm looking for, I'm looking for cash flow. And we're going to be playing the long game. If it's not that great of a location, it needs some work, then, you know, we could be just trying to lock it up and be very transparent that we maybe, maybe we bring in a cash partner to buy it and then we make an assignment fee on it. So it's just kind of the in, intuition that I have about real estate. I'm kind of like, um, um, I guess like a real estate uh, intuitive that you might say, but um, that just comes with looking at enough deals where you know how, you know, at the end, might look like. Um, but it, it's tough. I mean, I try to figure this out on the spot as best I can. And I generally have an idea based off of location and condition and how the conversation goes, if this is going to, what the angle is going to be. And, you know, again, payment, they want retail and the payment is crazy high. Nothing can be done. And we can't do anything creatively as far as like no down payment, I just do a subject to where I take over and maybe turn into an Airbnb. Then that's clear that is a listing and that's all that that's going to be. Um, so it just depends on all of these factors. We're looking at equity that the seller has. We're looking at what the current payment is that they have. We're looking at the condition, the location of the property. So I don't know, Matt, that's a, that's a good one. I, it's just a matter of having the skill set where it all kind of just blends together and you can kind of just figure it out. I actually love the way you answered that. And I love your general flexibility in your approach. Um, you've said this a couple of times, like asking the right questions is so important. And you, you've, give, you've probably given four to five an, or examples already just through the interview. And I really love the questions that you're asking because I believe strongly that people don't care what you have to say until you show that you care. And especially when you're offering a, a multiple options like you are it's like this is what it's worth when it's fixed this is what it will cost to repair it this is what you could sell it for now all of a sudden you become a different person you you mentioned integrity investing um and i've been taught essentially the same strategy but you're the trusted advisor instead of playing realtor or investor you're just there to help them so I'm gonna kind of put you on the spot here if we could strip away all the questions all your very experience if you had three questions that you can ask a seller what would they be yeah, that is on the spot there. Let's see what I can do here. So, I mean, the important questions, um, just kind of thinking out loud is, you know, what the, what the overall objective is, because that tells a lot, you know, if they come back and say, you know, I want to get the most money. Okay. Well, we could start digging deeper on, you know, what that could look like. And I, it doesn't necessarily negate my ability to buy it because we could talk about some creative finance stuff, but that tells a lot. So what is the objective? is is important you know um do you this is a good one what if i were to sell this for you today and now you have a lump sum of cash what are you going to do with that money 
do you have an investment to put it into? You're going to let it sit in your bank account and get it, let it get eaten by inflation or what is it? You I don't know. I don't, I haven't thought I'm like, well, inflation's kind of high right now. What if we were to put your money to work right away and you get to be the bank banks are the ones making all the money anyway, and um, you can finance me. So I think that's kind of an important question is what are you going to do with the cash? Um, and you know, I, I would say is timing is also important too, because if we're talking about, you know, they're just wanting me to kind of give an evaluation of the home, but it's a family decision that, you know, might not make a decision six to 12 months later. Well, okay. We're kind of premature on even having a conversation right now, because I'm interested in doing something of course, as soon as possible, we'll still be around six to 12 months from now, but we could be talking about a whole different environment. And so that's going to change this conversation entirely. So I would say those three things are what come to mind. Love this. So one of the, the reasons that we're trying to dive so deep into this question is because we're, we're hoping to bring out some insights for people who maybe struggle with putting together context and intuition. You and I are both very intuitive. I love that you were the, you use the word intuitive because that's the word I use. And the way that I see you going about these properties is really almost like an appraiser would. Like what's the highest and best use for the property? What's the highest and best use for you, for the seller? And where there's intersection for all three, that's where the win is. And so how, how like the more flexible you are by nature, the better you're going to get at putting these deals together, but the harder it is to teach. And so that's the intersection that I'm like super curious yeah. about is what is the intersection between <laughs> maximizing value and making it easy for people stripping away because complexity is the enemy of action. And so that's the quest that we're on. So, but I appreciate your transparency. Sure. So what have you found have been maybe the top couple ways of reinventing a property? So, you know, like, you know, the, we did an episode earlier today where the guy said every real estate transaction, every property is a business. You need to look at that business like it's its own P&L, like it's its, like its own revenue stream. What are maybe some of the ways that you found a way to either increase revenue or rethink a way a property is being used? Yeah, well, I can give you examples of how we've done some massive value add. Um, and this is a very important question that you ask. Um, you know, on this mobile home park that I had purchased, uh, we bought, uh, myself and a partner of mine bought a 58 space mobile home park here in Albuquerque, which by the way, took me 10 months to put this deal together because I was relentless in my follow-up and had to build this rapport with this elderly seller who was very much not trusting and it took some time. So after we got the deal done, you know, I could tell you, um, you know, a direct answer to that is in commercial real estate, as you, as you guys know, it's it's how can you maximize net operating income? Can we, can we increase expenses or can we, or excuse me, decrease expenses or can we increase income or can we do both? I mean, that's going to have a, a drastic impact on the value. And, and, and so what we did on the mobile home park um, was this was all master meter for, for water. Very simple move um, was not easy, but it was a simple idea. Uh, we had every, a mobile home, a submeter for water, and we started billing back for water. And we freed up a significant amount of, um, of money on a monthly basis and added a tremendous amount of value from it. Um, and so that was a really cool deal. Um, 
highest and best use, shoot, you know, there's a property I just closed on not long ago that was just in kind of the old town area in Albuquerque that was very much run down. I mean, it was just a dog, great location. Homeless people were breaking into it, kept it kept catching on fire because they were doing drugs in there. And so this was one where, because I knew the area and kind of the path of progress in this specific location, you know, it, it was unique because it was a good size lot and it has three separate three separate lots that have been parceled into one. So this one, at highest and best use, just kind of thinking about what the best thing for this property is it, one single family house on a quarter acre in a very hot location to me is not the best use of this property. So I demoed it, completely scraped it. And now I'm in the process of developing it into, I'm hoping the city will allow me to do this when I'm in the process of it, but developing townhomes to hold on to. Of course, I don't want to sell anything, but I would just, hopefully I can put six townhomes on this. And um, that was just a, I guess a way that I knew um, we had extra land that was being unused. I mean, if you look at a per foot basis, the income it could generate just off of a small 1200 square foot house on a big empty lot, it's pretty clear that there's more income that could be generated there. So, you know, just being a student of the game, studying, listening to guys like you, you know, who have experience. I've, I've just listened to so many podcasts, listened to hours and hours and hours. I feel like I have a doctorate in real estate just because I'm listening to smarter people. I get in bigger rooms and they just give me good insights. And that's how I sharpen my skill set. It's just not for me. I haven't done anything on my own. I've learned from standing on the shoulders of giants. What a fantastic answer. Um, I love how you mentioned the drug use. I mean, I heard Albuquerque has a methamphetamine problem. Um, that seems to be the <laughs> word on the street. Um, dude, I mean, I love what you're doing. So, I mean, I love that you rolled in the mobile home park and this new development that you mentioned because you said that you're looking to do bigger and bigger things as you're growing in your career. And those two things sound like much bigger projects than your previous ones. So what is your kind of, what is your idea for the bigger goals that you're setting for yourself? Like, let's say for the next 12 months, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? I have an issue, fellas, where I keep telling myself I'm done with the single family game just because, yes, they're great base hits and I've done well. It's been my bread and butter. But, you know, I've had experience with bigger commercial properties and just how quickly you can add a significant amount of wealth and value to a property and income. It's just like, it's a no brainer that I'm at the place now where it makes sense for me to start doing bigger deals. And so um, that is the goal in the next 12, 24 months. I would like to, um, I wanna get out of production as a realtor. I wanna become, the goal is I'm becoming the coach and the brand of my retail side and bringing in the talent to fulfill, you know, the, the actual day-to-day -day tasks and focus more on the investment side, which um, will allow me to get into bigger deals. And so I've been fortunate enough to build some amazing relationships with some very smart people that I've been brought in on some, some big deals. And so we're doing some bigger deals right now. I've got a, um, a, another mobile home park that is being developed that I'm getting brought into, um, down in, uh, the Las Lunas market. Um, we've got a retail, um, development that, uh, I, I have no, I don't have a clue about retail to, in all honesty, but I just have good relationships with brokers that are much smarter than me in this, in this realm and have brought me in on a, on a cool retail development, doing a warehouse development. So I'm starting to get into the area that I want to be in. Um, 
but multifamily has always been, um, you know, very good to me. And I, I, I like the residential component, but the commercial aspect of it as well. So I want to do more multifamily. And so I'm looking at larger multifamily deals right now. Um, and I guess the kind of a natural evolution of a person who's bringing good income is now you've got, you, you got to start taking some losses and I've done well with doing cost segregation studies and retaining more of my earned income. And I've kind of become addicted to this now. And so now it's a game of just trying to find more real estate to depreciate because God, nobody talks about that as enough as, as, as it should be mentioned, but more income equals more tax liability equals bigger projects to offset that. So kind of just forces you to start thinking the more, you know, you, you get into some of these bigger projects, but multifamily commercial development, um, not developing multifamily but on a small scale, but more so existing multifamily, larger 50 plus units is what I'm, I'm really exploring right now. Yeah, this is incredible. And this, this is like some things that blew my mind over the last few years learning about this. And it's like, say what, like you can make this kind of wealth on a deal, seven figures, multiple seven figures on a deal. Then you get the cost segregation benefits and you're writing all of it off. And it's just, yeah. it just seems like, like the, the biggest way I can equate it is like men in black, like the locker scenario where it's like, you're in this world and then you, then you get opened up to a world that is much bigger. You had no clue existed. Um, you know, I always at the top of the echelon was just making seven figures as an agent. And then you realize like there are people that, that, uh, they laugh when, when you, when you talk about all that work and they're like, oh, I just buy a couple of deals and make 20 million a year or whatever. So awesome, man. I right. love the aspirations. We want to hear updates from you as you go. And the, sure the, as you continue to climb the deals that you're doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to share about your life and your business and your team and all these insights and for allowing us to put you on the spot. So guys, I mean, take one action that you can get from this episode, whether it be leveling up to the next level, whether it be focusing on mindset or maybe take Robbie's like his complete and utter confidence in himself, despite everything and, and take that away. And so you tell this to somebody that you know, so you can take action. Because freedom is only one action away. And before you know it, guys, you guys will be living the life of freedom. So thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next episode.